Thanks, Carol, for doing that hymn. That's one of my very favorite hymns. I asked if, uh, if she'd record that. I appreciate it. Welcome to APD. If you have any questions, send them to APD at cdview.org. Ask Pastor Don. And uh, here's one that came in that uh, reminded me of something that I'd done a few weeks ago. Hi, Pastor Don. Several weeks ago, you did your Wednesday night refresh devotional from James 1, 2 to 4. And I, I remember doing that. All about the way God uses trials to perfect our lives. James says they make us perfect. I don't disagree, but you never actually said how trials can do this. So my question is, how do trials do this? What is the specific work of trials? And what should I be looking for? How can I know if these trials I'm going through are actually doing anything good in my life? So the writer says, my question is this. And then there's about four questions in there. And they're good questions. And you're right. Uh, I never did actually list the specific things that trials make perfect in our lives. Uh, for that matter, nor does James give a complete list, so I don't feel quite as guilty. I'm in the same camp. But before we start, let's look at the verses that the questioner is asking about. They found in James chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 4, and James says this, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. So that just seems like a, almost an impossible command to start with. Because you know, so the joy comes from understanding something, knowing something. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So there. Let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, complete, lacking nothing. So endurance has to have its full effect, but James doesn't really uh, list the effects, what those effects would be. I mean, we do know this much. James says that uh, trials can produce endurance. They don't necessarily produce endurance, but if we respond properly, trials can produce endurance. And James says that trials uh, test and prove our faith somehow in a way that pleasures don't. Trials can have a good effect. That's the word he uses in verse 4. And then he's careful to add that this production of endurance isn't automatic. I mean, I guess we should know that. The very nature of endurance is it's developed over time. If you get it right away, it's not endurance. But that's about all James says right in that text. Endurance, we know this much, it's never an easy virtue to develop. It's always easier not to endure unless, unless there's a way of seeing the value of enduring. So if you can see the result of the endurance, knowing, knowing this, if you can see the result of endurance while you're in the throes of the painful trial, well then that will help make enduring it seem worthwhile at least, even if not easy. 
We actually get an example of this from the life of Jesus himself. It's a beautiful text. You know some of these words. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's the Hebrews 11 part, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance. Okay, there it is. Same as James. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. And then these instructions. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the the pioneer. I like that. He, he did this first. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith. What did Jesus do? Well, for the joy that lay before him, he endured. So now this is Jesus doing the enduring that we're being called to do in, in James. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So these are very personal words. I mean, they probe into the deepest desires and motives of God the Son. He, he, he kept the eye on what was before him, the joy that lay before him, 12.2. This is what Jesus did. Why are, why are we told these very private details of what's going on in the psyche of Jesus as he's enduring the cross? Well, of course... Jesus needed no purifying from sin through the strained endurance that he manifested on the cross. He didn't need to be purified like we. But we're still told all about his endurance. Keeping his eyes on what was before him, the joy that was before him. We're told all that so that we would have a model, a pattern to follow. We're being pulled into the divine pattern of allowing endurance to do its proper work in our hearts. So the pattern is clear. There's a divine pathway. It's marked out by our Lord. Dark nights of raw endurance are best walked through seeing what comes after the enduring. So it's the fruit of endurance that carries us through the strain of endurance. We need this, all of us. We need to be able to set before our minds the benefits of enduring through trials. And so that brings us full circle to the question. What specifically will, what James calls the perfecting work of trials when we endure them, what will that fruit look like? What should I be looking for? What are the results? And here's where we launch in. First, trials build character. Trials build character. I get that from Romans 5, 1 to 4. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, so he's talking about Christians, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope, the hope, that's down the road, haven't seen it yet, the hope of the glory of God. Okay, not only that, we also boast in our afflictions, our trials, because we know, there's the knowing part, 
that affliction produces endurance, just like James talked about, just like Jesus did in Hebrews 12. Endurance produces proven character. That's what we're looking at right now. What, what are the fruits of trials if we endure them? Well, endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. So I like that emphasis in verse 4, proven character. Uh, trials reveal inner realities that pleasures never do. Trials prove something. That's the word he uses. Something of the genuineness of my life in Christ. It gets revealed in the face of trouble and trial and loss. In this sense, the truths of my life in Christ get revealed in a way that runs deeper than just verses in a Bible. I learn the experience of them. So, so for me to say Christ is my life as I drive to the beach in my Porsche, it may be absolutely true that he is. But to proclaim Christ is my life as I lie in the hospital with stage four cancer is something unquestionably deeper. Just to be clear, just so you don't misunderstand me, I may very well be speaking the truth when I say Christ is my life, even in my riches and my great health. I'm not saying that can't be true. I'm saying there is no outward proof that Christ is my life until he's revealed in my darkest trial. I think that's what Paul meant when he said, affliction produces proven character. There's one of the fruits. First, trials produce character. Secondly, trials produce witness. I get that in Mark 13. These interesting verses... Uh, Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, Luke 21, Matthew 24, Mark 13. Jesus speaks and says, nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you, his disciples, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts. You will be flogged in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. Those are striking words. I mean, these kings and governors and leaders, they have an awareness that the only crime committed by these victims is their devotion to Jesus. The obvious plan in bringing them before these leaders is to cause these disciples to renounce their Lord. These leaders are counting on this. And, and the witness to Christ becomes vivid when even condemning in the way these Christians will lay down their lives rather than renounce their Lord. Their witness becomes condemning to these leaders as they see that these disciples are so devoted to Jesus they would rather give up their lives than betray him. That's why these disciples under trial aren't called victims. They're called witnesses. The point here is others aren't usually impressed when we cherish the same values they cherish. 
But Jesus looks precious even to those who reject his lordship when his followers bear suffering with joy and endurance for his sake. Trials produce witness. Three, trials train us to minister to others. I get that in 2 Corinthians 1, 2-6. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Did did you ever have a teacher in school who really knew the material well but was unable to help you because they couldn't quite come all the way down to your level. It's not that they don't know enough. It's just that they can't get down to where you are simply enough. God has a way of fixing this problems. I find I pray for people more passionately when I can relate to what they're going through. If I've faced the same thing, I find it easier to pray. I mean, there's a duty to pray for everyone with their need and trial. I'm talking about, I feel a natural pull into praying for people who are going through something that I have faced in my own life. I relate. I empathize. I'm drawn in. That's just a small picture of the Holy Spirit's work through our trials. God allows us to experience suffering and trial and loss because there are going to be other people experiencing suffering and trial and loss, and they will need my ministry. They will need my support. And the loving ministry in the body of Christ isn't supposed to be just doled out coldly like a prescription. Here's some help. Read these verses. It's supposed to be a loving sympathetic reach that comes from the depth of my soul to the depth of the soul of someone who's going through what I have once gone through. We should be grateful, you know. We should be grateful that we have this modeled so vividly in Jesus Christ that God the Father doesn't just dole out some cold mechanical pardon for my badness. Look again at the the gap-bridging reach of a loving God to each of us in our need. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, so he's ascended, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, they're persecuted, they're suffering, they're in periods of trial, there certainly will be and have been. How do they hold fast? Here's how. 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because we have someone who sympathizes with us, let us approach the throne of grace with 
boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. So trials, trials produce the ability to minister to others. Four, trials clarify our values. I get that in 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap. That's interesting. It makes it like there's somebody behind it setting a trap. A trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. I wouldn't have written those words like that. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think you can see Timothy has two goals in this text, not just one. So his opening words are so obvious that you don't really feel they should even need saying. We leave everything behind us on earth when we die. We brought nothing into this world, verse 7. We take nothing out. So the rich and the poor, they all leave in exactly the same fashion. So that's an obvious truth. Why does Paul even bother stating the obvious? Because material goods, while they're powerless to affect a person after death, they can poison the whole life before death comes. That's what he means in verse 9. Those who want to be rich fall into temptation a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people to ruin and destruction. So that's the concern. The concern isn't after you die. You can't take anything with you. The concern is now while you're still alive. Jesus talked about it in his parable of the seed and the soils, Matthew 13, 22. Now the one sown among thorns is the one who hears the word the worries of this age, and the deceitfulness of wealth. Choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. But God, in his mercy, he has a plan. He prepares us for deeper entry of the seed of his word into our hearts because he brings reality checks to our souls in the form of trials He brings reality checks on our souls regarding material goods right now. He uses recessions. He uses loss of employment. He uses financial reversals to keep the soil of our hearts fertile for the deeper growth and fruitfulness of the seed of his word. Probably thinking about that caution from Jesus, Paul says, apart from God's pruning work in our souls, Many people will end up, verse 10, piercing themselves with many griefs. It's a hard lesson to learn. I mean, classroom lectures and Bible studies alone don't teach us to scale down our desires the way trials do. The idea, the idea that not wanting something is as good as possessing it, 
is a very hard lesson to learn. And trials apparently are a necessary agent in teaching us that truth. So trials clarify values. Lastly, trials set our hearts on eternity. I see that Hebrews 11, 13 to 15, listing all these great models and heroes of faith. They weren't perfect, but they demonstrated great faith. When you get down to verse 13, the writer is starting to summarize, and he says, these all died in faith, though they had not received the things that were promised. Underscore, underscore that. They had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking, they're seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. That first sentence, verse 13, is really the most important. These are people, they had promises from God, and the writer, maybe a little more blunt and honest than is comfortable, he says they had promises from God and they didn't get what God promised them. Wow. The context makes it clear they were expecting deliverance from trials. Okay? But for many of them, no deliverance came. You can, you can just jump down to, well, you can pick any, let's say 35 to 39. Some people received, women received their dead, raised to life again. And then right in the next sentence, other people were tortured. Not accepting release. They could be let go if they just abandoned faith. So that they might gain a better resurrection. That's what they were thinking about. Others experience mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts, on mountains, hiding in caves, in holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So what carried them along? Where did their strength come from? To say it, well, from God, Pastor Don, I know, but that's, it's true, but it's tragically incomplete. It's oversimplified. God did strengthen them, but how? I mean, they were involved in the way God strengthened them. Here's what they did. They set their hearts on God's future grace and blessing. Verse 13 says they were looking farther down the road. They didn't get the immediate promise, but they had a homeland. They set their hearts on it. They saw these things, verse 13, they saw these things from a distance. They didn't hold them yet. They saw them in the distance, and it says they greeted them. There you are. That's my future. Trials set our hearts on eternity. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, give your future in Christ a hug. Fill your mind with it all day. All the trinkets, they can disappear in a minute. Trials teach us that vividly. 
So here's my conclusion to the question about the role of trials and how they, in James' words, make us perfect. James 1.4, the conclusion is trials are necessary for discipleship. Five things that trials will do. No wonder, no wonder, let me close with this. Paul and Barnabas, they speak these words to new believers in Antioch. They're found in Acts 14, 21 to 22. Look them up. It says, after they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, these are new Christians, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples. How do you strengthen the disciples? By encouraging them to continue in the faith. That's good. And by telling them, get this, quote, here's what they told them. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. There you go. That title won't sell a lot of books. But it's right there in the book of Acts. Trials are necessary. They will really help to protect your faith. Don't go looking for them, but endure them with joy when they come for what they can produce in your heart. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, that you aren't to be judged by isolated events that you have a plan so encompassing that it works all things to get all things together for our good. Circumstances don't slip beyond your control, even when they slip beyond our understanding. We're committed to you for the long run. We're committed to you for the long haul. Let everything that you bring into our hearts be met with endurance and faith and the confidence that there is a sure future for your children and that you never leave us or forsake us. I ask it in Jesus' name and I thank you. Bless Cedarview Community Church and help us to be devoted to the word. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church. Love one another.